This is the Macmillan Library Podcast, a community conversation maker, bringing you curated conversations with Macmillan librarians, community members, authors, musicians, artists, and more. Welcome back to the podcast. On this episode, we're going to be sharing the Ghost Short Story Contest winners from our short story contest in October. Along with the audio version of these stories, we're going to post them online on our podcast page. The Ghost Story Contest winners, as selected by a panel of four judges, were first place, Mackenzie Tastin, Omnes Morimor, second place, Untitled Story by Tila Davis, and third place, Tasteful Settings by A.J. Roy. Thank you to all who have participated and sent in a story. Keep your eyes out for our spring short story contest. And now, the stories. Tasteful Settings by A.J. Roy Come on, come on, we're going to get soaked, Freddie said, jabbing a finger into her back. I'm trying. The keys rattled as she spun the ring, trying to find the right one. She was already nervous breaking into her grandmother's house like this, and her Uncle Richard didn't have any of the keys labeled. Let me do it, her boyfriend suggested. I know how to open doors, Freddie, Anna said, and provided the evidence a moment later. The kitchen door of the old mansion screamed in protest as it swung inwards. It was dark inside. The electricity had been shut off for years, and with the storm rolling in, there wasn't much of the noonday sun to be found. Yes! Freddie shoved her forward into the gloom and then slammed the door shut behind them. It reeked of mold and decay, and Anna's nose wrinkled in disgust. I don't like this. Then quit dawdling. Let's grab the loot and go. Freddie scurried over to a side cupboard and opened the top drawer. Inside lay rows of silverware, blackened with tarnish. He lifted a fork and crowed, Ha! Real silver! I knew this was a good idea. He began shoveling handfuls of the stuff into his duffel bag. Have a taste. What? The young man asked. I didn't say anything, Anna said, moving further into the house. She stepped into the great room, a massive chamber with a table for six, a desk at the far wall, and two overstuffed armchairs in front of the fireplace. A large mirror hung over the mantel, cloudy with dust. I hate that mirror. It gives me the creeps, she said. Freddie and his jingling duffel bag came into the room. Well, good. We're not taking it. It's too big. Anna ran her hand over one of the chairs. Was this where her mother sat? She killed them right here, you know. At her own table. Her own family. Servants, too. Everyone but Uncle Richard. She'd have killed him, too, but he was running late that night. Lucky him. What kind of woman poisons her own family? Aw, babe, are you all right? Freddie looked guilty and annoyed about it. Have a taste. What? Anna asked. I said, we have to do this. You know that, honey. This will get us out of this town for good. We can't wait for the trust to transfer over to you. The job isn't going to be open forever. I know, she said. She looked up at the mirror again and gasped, spinning towards the kitchen. What? What? Freddie tried peeking around her to see what had scared her. There. There was a woman. She... Anna turned back to the mirror, but couldn't see anything. Just the reflection of the crazy witch's portrait. Get it together. 
People break in all the time, she said. Not since that couple that got sent to Mendota. A pair of trespassers had spent the night four years earlier. They were hauled away the next day, raving and biting at the cops. They were both still at the asylum, wearing those hockey mask muzzles, if you believed the stories. Anna got a hard time at school over the house. She supposed that it that was what convinced her to take off with Freddie. He had a fracking job waiting for him in South Dakota. Good money, but first they needed the cash to get there. Listen, the jewelry's all upstairs. Why don't you run up there and grab it so we can get out of here? She frowned at the portrait, raining hate on a woman she had never met. Good plan, doll. He kissed the top of her head and then made his way to the stairs. Anna ran her hand over the chair again and once more stared into the cloudy mirror. There she was again! Freddie took the stairs, two at a time, then halfway up, peeked back at Anna to see if she was okay. She was just standing in front of the fireplace, looking up at the mirror with a dull, open-mouthed stare. If she kept this creepy act up much longer, he wasn't taking her to South Dakota. The second floor was a maze of antiques. He supposed most of the things in the drafty old manor were valuable at some point, but they needed to travel light and stick with the portable, pawnable stuff. Treasure, in other words. There was bound to be some treasure. At last, he found the master bedroom. A giant canopied bed took up most of the room. It was huge. A grin spread across his face, and he wondered if he shouldn't call Anna up there so they could have a taste. Freddy jumped. He spun in little circles, trying to find where the voice had come from. Anna could have beaten him there while he was exploring the other rooms. Nothing. He was getting as loopy as she was. He cursed himself out and then got back to business. There was a vanity near the door to what he assumed was a master bath, and that was where the treasure was hiding. Jackpot. Diamonds, emeralds, sapphires, rubies, all in tasteful gold and silver settings. Anna wasn't kidding. Her grandmother was loaded. If he played his hand right, they wouldn't even be sleeping in the van until his checks started coming in. They could stay in some hotel. Heck, a nice hotel. He grabbed a jewelry box and shoved it in the duffel bag, then another, and another. He got a little clumsy in his excitement, and a ring bounced under the bed. No way was he leaving that behind. That rock was as big as his thumbnail. Freddy flattened himself out on his belly and slithered under the bed. His hand wrapped around the ring, and suddenly Anna screamed. Not scary part in a movie screamed. Screamed like she was being murdered. He cracked his head against the bed frame and swore, then slithered back out. The window was right there. He could, should, just take the jewelry and go. But if it turned out that Anna was fine and she found out he ditched her there, well, the law had a long arm. Babe, he called out. Babe, what's up? Nothing. He grabbed the duffel bag and sprinted for the stairs. If this turns into an emergency room visit, Uncle Rich is paying for it. He found her still in front of the mirror. That empty look was gone now, and she was smiling. No, beaming. What the heck were you hollering for? Oh, it was a rat. Crawled right over my foot. They're brave. Mighty big noise for a rat, Freddy sulked. I wasn't even done raiding the bedroom. There's cash in the desk, Anna said dismissively. Secret compartment, top right drawer. She went back to grinning at her reflection. Well, you could have said so earlier. He walked past the table and set his duffel bag on top of the desk. The drawer was full of legal pads and envelopes, and he scooped them onto the floor. He poked and prodded, feeling for a latch or a button or something. When he pressed the bottom near the back of the drawer, the front pivoted up. Yes! 
Freddie slid his fingers under the panel and lifted it up. Geez Louise, Anna, these are hundreds. There's got to be like $30,000 in here. We're rich. He grabbed one of the manila envelopes and started stuffing the stacks of cash in it. Forty, she said. She gave one last wink to her reflection and then walked to the front door. It opened easily. Come on, Freddie. I want to make sure there's a nice, hot meal waiting for Richard when he comes back. The young man frowned at that. They'd been dating for almost a year, and she'd never cooked anything for him. He didn't even know she could cook. Whatever. There'd be plenty of time for all, all that when they left town. He put the last stack in his pocket and made for the door. Ah, oh, crud. The jewelry. They could keep some of that. Now, it would look good on Anna. As he turned back to the desk, he caught a glimpse of Anna in the mirror. Not by the door. The angle was wrong for that. He saw her right in front of him. He looked down and didn't see a thing. But when he looked back at the mirror, there she was, pounding on his chest and crying her eyes out. Hurry up, Freddy, said the woman at the door. I'm not getting any younger. She smiled, and the storm broke overhead. My name is Tila Davis, and this is an untitled ghost story. Another strike of lightning lit up the beach, and the lone figure cursed under his breath, tripping over debris brought in by the tide. It sure was a hell of a night for the lighthouse to be out. The storm had torn through the lake with speeds Cale and Jacobson had not yet seen in his three weeks residing in the bay. Though it's true the sun had started the day behind clouds, there had been no other indicators the weather would become this severe so rapidly. When he applied for the open surfman's position at the Sunfish Point Lighthouse, watching over Lake Superior, Kalen had thought he'd already seen the worst nature could do. He'd been wrong. Just this week, he'd seen waves taller than houses, water so cold it became ice upon slamming into the metal hulls of the ships, and the wind, oh, the wind. The strength of it was currently pushing Kalen around like nothing, picking up anything not lashed down for fodder on its destructive path. It conjured childhood memories from stories told by his father and uncle, who for years battled the waves of this same lake with their modest hundred-foot schooner trading items along the coast. Nigh. Kalen heard the warning voice of his storm-weathered uncle as he fought to keep his hat and footing through another gust. Those gales will pick up a man bigger than you and toss him right into the drink without a second thought, they will. You keep your tether and your wits about you, you'll be right enough. Wits, Caitlin thought ruefully, he had. Though shaken, they remained intact. A tether, on the other hand. The water crashed over him for the umpteenth time, successfully taking his hat and leaving a fresh water lining inside his raincoat. His grip on the looping rope guide rail kept him on his feet, and he let out a nervous breath. The rain had started shortly after dawn and remained relentless, combining forces with the wind to carry sheets of rain and lake water inland to wreak havoc on the bay. He had been soaked since stepping out that morning. The keeper had needed everyone early on when an ocean-faring Salty and her crew had disregarded the heavy rain and set course to attempt outrunning the storm. Their voyage, though hard-pressed to succeed, was inevitably short-lived. And although every attempt was made, they had not been able to save it. Kaylin knew wrecks like this were frequent in the bay, especially when winter moved in. 
but he hadn't had to leave anyone behind from one before. This storm, however, made it so. His crew's lifeboat was overweight and damn close to capsizing during the thick of it. In order to save more, they had to leave men behind. Kalen was willing to go back for them, but when another monstrous wave engulfed the wreckage they clung to and they didn't reappear, the keeper told them their work had reached a natural end. He knew it wasn't his burden to bear the guilt of those lost, but he couldn't shake it. The survivors had been scattered long and far after the ship broke apart, making their task daunting. But the surfmen were tireless in their efforts, doing all that they could. The newly organized United States Coast Guard could not be sorry with how well the Sunfish Point crew had worked. Indeed, the keeper announced he would be sending commendations in the morning. But the praise felt tarnished when Kayla knew everyone aboard had not returned. It was days like these that made him doubt joining the life-saving service and wonder if his mother had been right in worrying. Would he, too, follow in his father's footsteps one day and be among those the lake claimed? It was something he thought about often enough, more so with this inclement weather. Death would come for every man, but he had inherently placed himself into a dangerous profession with no guarantee for another sunrise. As every surfman recited, you have to go out but you don't have to come back. His father had likely repeated that motto as often as Kalen did, all without incident, too, up until the last time he went out. Kalen wondered if his father knew the lake would eventually take him, if one day he figured he would go out and never come back to his life, his family. Had he pictured it? Kalen gulped. He couldn't do that to his mother, he swore, not a second time. To leave no trace or a goodbye for her, or his young kid of a brother? He refused. He wouldn't let the water take him, too. And yet, he knew destiny wasn't ones to deal. Steady, he muttered to himself, refocusing on his task at hand. That way of thinking would only split his focus and ensure his end. As his uncle had advised, he needed to keep a level head, though it was easier said than done. For one thing, the storm was still raging, with no end in sight. For another, he was all alone on the beach in complete darkness. Kalen couldn't recall when, but his light had been doused by the waves some time ago. He'd carried on, working with the little bit of light there was, but now that night had fallen completely, he was without a tether or his sight, and perhaps soon his wits. It wasn't the dark that concerned him. Kalen wasn't afraid of the dark. If he had been, he wouldn't have joined a job that often put him in darkness with only a sole beacon of light, literally, to brighten it. Nor was he superstitious. A few on the crew were, dreading when they would have to walk this stretch after ships went down, looking for bodies. They feared the dead would be angry and their ghosts would try to harm them or some such nonsense. Kalen didn't believe that, however. The dead were dead and he doubted any miserable souls would come back just to torment the living. If anything, he would think they would want to help those alive, warn them about danger. That's what he would do, anyway. But, he laughed silently, ghosts weren't real, so it didn't matter what he thought of them. Although he had heard local tales like that of old Three Fingers Riley, Kalen hadn't had the pleasure to come across him or any other ghosts. 
Maybe if he did, he'd change his tune. Movement in front of him caused Kalen to jump, head momentarily full of ghouls, when a single glow came out of the darkness toward him. Had he been too quick to dismiss the supernatural? Though spooked, he stood his ground. He blinked and the glow became shapes. His legs tensed, ready to run, but after another blink, he recognized the shapes. First, that of a lantern, then a uniform. Kalen's shoulders dropped with relief. It wasn't some specter out for revenge, just a man. Another surfman, maybe, though not one from Kalen's crew. Perhaps a former surfman, he thought, seeing wisps of gray around the man's temples. The coat was an identical cut, but not quite the same as Kalen's. Instead of an orange slicker with bold black lettering proclaiming him to be part of the Sunfish Point USCG, it was a faded rust in color, with scraps of peeled lettering and patches on the front, making it difficult to read. He figured the man must be from another light, or wearing a retired uniform. There were several lights along the coast, so it wasn't impossible. The stranger, if not for his lantern, would have been lost to him in the night. They may have even passed silently by the other without realizing until morning broke and the sun revealed their tracks, if the rain left any. Rejuvenated by the sight of another, he picked his way over to the stranger, giving a shout to catch his attention. Kalen was sure the man wouldn't hear over the crash of the breaking water, but his head snapped up and startled eyes seemed to gaze right into Kalen's being. First, with wild surprise, but then a cold, suspicious stare took over, and Kalen's feet slowed before halting completely. Both appeared to hold their breath, perhaps questioning if the other were real or a storm-induced hysteria. At least, that's what Kalen was weighing, until another wave smashed over them and the man was still there. Even if the visage in front of him were supernatural or a hypothermic vision, Kalen didn't wait for another swell to fall before he broke the silence. Hello! Sorry to startle you, but I saw your light. You really shouldn't be out right now, sir. If you come back to the light with me, we can... As Kalen spoke, he turned toward the footpath but stopped mid-sentence. The boardwalk he had just traversed was completely submerged and violently churning as the waves surged with the storm. The rope he previously clung to lay snapped from the force of the water and frayed into lengths, swirling with every tidal pull. The longer he stared at the spot he passed over, however, it seemed eroded not only by the storm, but somehow time itself. Behind him, a voice reminded him he was not alone, and he turned toward that sense of grounding. Aye, you best come with me, I think. The man's voice, though low, cut through the howling wind, and Kalen found himself nodding, hurrying after the form sloshing away from him to the caves near the far edge of the bay. Once inside, Kalen wasn't surprised to see a small camp set up. People often stayed here for a night or two during the summer. He wouldn't have thought anyone would want to sleep in the elements this time of year, though. The weather was decidedly brisker, as well as more temperamental this far in the year. But, Kalen had to admit, after leaving the dampness and wind outside, the mere barrier of a wall gave him enough warmth to think of the space as cozy. If it weren't for the pervasive chill, comfortable even. 
His host motioned for him to have a seat, and he yielded almost immediately, his abrupt exhaustion leaving no room for argument. As the man moseyed around, Kalen sat, took his boots off, and emptied them into the sandy floor. He placed his feet near a smoldering fire and shivered in reaction. Visions of bed rest and meals of tepid broth swam in his eyes, and he prayed he hadn't caught any prolonged cold. The keeper would have his hide if he did. Frowning at that possibility, Kalen looked up in time to see the man staring at him before averting his gaze. Kalen realized then he hadn't introduced himself or thanked the man for the brief respite of shelter. How rude he must seem. He decided to only stay long enough to get the feeling back in his fingers. Then he would be off to finish his sweep of the beach. Forgive me, I didn't introduce myself. I'm Kalen Jacobson of the Sunfish Point U.S. Lifesaving Service. Kalen could have been mistaken, but a gleam of something like pride flashed across the other's eyes. Pride and something deeper. It may have just been the fire, though, for as quick as it appeared, it was gone. Surfman Kalen Jacobson? It's a pleasure, a damn pleasure, son. He took Kalen's hand and shook it animatedly. Kalen was surprised not at the grip, but how the man's hands were even colder than his own. That's good work done at the light. I'd wager your family is real proud of you. Folks around here call me Salver. He nodded his head, and after a beat of staring at Kalen, went to rekindle the fire. Something about the other felt familiar, hovering on the edge of his mind. Though, the harder he tried to remember what it was, the hazier it became. Oh well, he could dwell on it later, when he was dry, warm, and had time to spare. It was probably the fact he had someone next to him to converse with, instead of just himself, that made him suddenly hunger for more company. What he needed was a night of cards with the lads, or a trip home to visit his family. Until then, he would simply enjoy the sense of kinship and not question it. His new companion, Salver, sat down and after watching Kalen covertly through the fire, asked what happened to beach him in the area during the worst godforsaken storm in nearly 40 years. Huffing out a laugh, Kalen smiled at the man's vocabulary of almost entirely nautical terms and answered, Much like you, I imagine. I mean, I hadn't planned on the storm, but the water will always call and someone will answer. And Kalen chuckled. (laughs) Someone has to answer to the call of those who are doomed by their own foolishness of getting caught out there on a night like this. An acknowledging nod was his only answer for several minutes as Salver stoked the logs. Some would consider it more foolish to try and rescue those who doomed themselves, came a thoughtful response, and Kalen shrugged. Well, perhaps, but one can only hope our deeds, foolhardy or not, will eventually be weighed against their intent when all is said and done. So even if I am a fool for helping my fellow man, I can't say I'll regret it when my judgment comes. Salver listened quietly to Kalen's sentiment face showing neither agreement nor dissent throughout. When his moral justification was over, however, a sad smile came over the man's face, and he nodded with the smallest of movements. Sounds like a surfman through and through if I ever did hear one. I didn't mean to insult you, friend. I was merely curious to hear your answer.
It's fine. I took no offense. You wouldn't be the first to suggest I might be better suited with a jester hat instead of this. He reached up to tug the brim before remembering his hat had been lost in the gales. Well, instead of the surfman's uniform, my mother would surely rest easier. They shared a chuckle over his mother's concern, acknowledging how deeply universal a mother's concern for her child ran, that she might prefer them to become a literal fool if it meant their continued safety. So, Kalen said, continuing their conversation. Salver, huh? Is that what brought you here? You're a salvage man? Salver's laugh quieted as he glanced at Kalen, but he gave a nod. Salvage of sorts. The smirk and whimsy dancing across his features slowly vanished, replaced by a hardness Kalen couldn't place. Silence filled the room, apart from the soft crackles and pops of the fires, but the atmosphere shifted. It wasn't calm and jovial anymore, but tense and charged. Kalen didn't know what had changed, but felt the urgency to tread carefully. Not just ships, then. Cargo? Items like your coat? As soon as the prying words left his mouth, he regretted them. Salver stiffened, back going rigid, and his outstretched hands, warming by the fire, curling defensively. One dropped down to pinch the weathered fabric of the hem, and he seemed lost in thought, weighed down by whatever unpleasantness ran through his head. Uh, I'm sorry, that was too personal. I just thought I recognized you as a surfman from it earlier, but I see that's not the case, so I thought maybe you had gotten it from a wreck. Which, if you did, that's fine. You don't need to. Salver held up a hand, and Kalen stopped spewing words. It's all right. No need to apologize for your curiosity. Some memories are just too much to think of in their entirety, even with time. You caught me off guard is all. It came from the Gitchigumi, all right, but she kept something far more important. Ah, Kalen realized. He must have lost someone to the waters. I understand, Kalen murmured, his own pass leaping to the front of his head. You do? The outburst caught Kalen off guard and he jumped, nearly falling off the surf-polished boulder. Salver looked expectant on the edge of his seat as his eyes bored into Kalen's. Well, yes, I... Kalen cleared his throat and broke the tense eye contact. I lost someone to the lake as well. Never said goodbye. Emotions flooded through him, and he took a moment to compose himself. When he looked back to his company, he saw a queer look upon Salver's brow. A crestfallen sadness marred his amicable expression. I see. I thought with the coat, but that's... I'm sorry, brother. Kalen arched a brow opening his mouth to ask what his coat had to do with anything, when a sound outside caught his attention. He stood, turning to the entrance. Had that been a yell for help? He turned to Salver, but jumped in surprise. He was beside him already. I know what you're thinking, but don't go out there. Please. Kalen, startled by Salver's sudden nearness and pleading, took a step back. When he did, he heard it again cries on the wind. The men from earlier, at least one of them, was still alive. He had to go, had to, 
The grip on his arm tightened and Kalen gave a yelp. Salver, stop. I need to get out there. Someone made it. They're still alive. I have to help. Kalen forewent his boots as he brushed off Salver's hand, deciding they weren't necessary. He turned to leave, but again was stopped. This time, the grip was harder to shake, and when he finally did, Salver was on the ground crawling toward him, begging him not to go. I'm sorry, Salver, but I have to. A fool has to go out, but he doesn't have to come back. He smiled as he began stripping layers and ran out of the cave. Salver, defeated, sat back on his heels and let his head hang. He could picture the scene happening in the water right now. Kalen, swimming in the water until he came to the man who had clung to a barrel for nearly nine hours. Kalen, pushing the barrel and man closer to shore. Kalen, being swept away by the final wave that crashed over the pair as the barrel and man drifted close enough in for him to climb out of the water to safety. The man, a fool to guide his ship into a storm, surviving, while his rescuer, became lost at sea. The next morning, Salver walked into the town diner discouraged. The news on the TV talked about anniversary plans for the defunct lighthouse, how 40 years after her worst storm, she might now be a museum, but he didn't listen. He walked to the corner booth and set the old jacket down in front of Kalen's brother. The man, younger than him, held his perpetual frown. Pushing 50, he seemed less and less keen on these yearly meetups as time went by. He would probably stop coming here once Salver died, the older man realized sadly. He sat down on the empty side and sighed, grabbing one of the coffee mugs already in place. I'll take it by that sigh. You've not been successful in bringing him home. Salver shook his head and had to close his eyes. I really thought this time... I really did, I thought, with the coat. The younger man scrutinized Salver with his eyes and let out a long sigh himself. (sighs) Look, I know what this means to each of us, but maybe it's time to give up the ghost on this. Let Kaylin be. Salver's eyes turned on the man quickly, a dare held within. Kaylin rescued me. He risked everything to bring me back and lost everything to save me. I'm sorry, but I can't, won't rest until I return the favor. He might never realize he's dead, you know, the other stated sharply, and Salver nodded. He had considered it. Maybe so, but as long as he's out there, patrolling the beach and warning people about the storms, he'll never find his peace. He deserves that after all he's done. Kalen's brother nodded slowly, admitting defeat. Salver wasn't wrong. He dropped his eyes, deep in thought, and neither of them broke the silence. The waitress came and refilled their coffees. A short rain cloud passed overhead, and a group of children out from school ran past before Salver dug a bill from his pocket and placed it on the table. Until next year, Salver said and after clasping a hand on his old acquaintance's shoulder, walked out. Until next year, the younger man agreed, leaving the diner with his brother's salvaged uniform under arm.
My name is Colin McGinnis, and I'm going to be reading a story by Mackenzie Taston called Omnes Morimor. Jane shifted uncomfortably on the air mattress in her tent. She wished now that she'd agreed to stay at the bed and breakfast in town with the others. Only she and David had stayed at the site and camped. The diehards were what the others called them. The hard-ups would have been more accurate. Jane sighed and rolled over onto her back. She was 35 and starting to seriously question some of her life decisions. She'd always wanted to be an archaeologist, and she was never happier than when she was in the dirt, but it was a hard way to make a living. David was also in his 30s, and they'd worked on several projects together. She didn't consider him a close friend, but they got along well enough. Abruptly, she lay completely still and listened. What was that? There it was again. It sounded like someone howling in pain. No, it was more than one person. She sat bolt upright and crawled to the edge of her tent. She unzipped the flap and poked her head out. The noises stopped. She couldn't see anything. It was a cloudy night, so there was no light from the moon. What could have made a sound like that? Hey! She heard David before she saw him, striding over from his tent a few paces away. Did you hear that? I could hardly have missed it, she said. What do you think it was? That's what I came to ask you. I have no idea. Could it have been some kind of animal, a bird or something? Jane asked. I don't think so. It sounded so human. It sounds crazy, but I think there is a group of people being murdered right outside. When I went to look, there was nothing. That's what I thought it sounded like, too. Like people screaming in pain. It reminded me of a battle scene from a movie, except it was right out here. Do you think it's safe for us to go back to sleep? I don't think we have much of a choice. It would take us hours to walk back to town from here. I guess you're right. She hesitated for a moment. Do you want to move your mattress into my tent? I'm not looking for a booty call. I'm just really freaked out. Yeah, thanks. I'm glad you asked. The next morning, Jane quietly picked away at her two-by-two -two test pit. She robotically bagged the bones as she dug them up. She'd excavated plenty of funerary sites in her career, from historic graveyards to prehistoric funeral complexes, but something wasn't right about these skeletons. The crew was finding a ton of human remains, but all the bones were horribly damaged. Archaeology is meticulous work, and digging up inside skeletons is the most delicate of all. No one was doing anything to damage the bones as they pulled them out, but they were all broken. There were other anomalies with the skeletons. They were all female, and none appeared to have died in childbirth. These two facts were strange enough. In some populations, female remains were more prevalent than male ones because women tended to die at home of natural causes while the male populations could be decimated in battle. But there were always some men, the elderly, the young, the sick. They hadn't found a single male burial. These women had all sustained serious injuries in life, some of which never would have healed properly. The injuries were all concentrated on the distal side of the skeletons, which meant that they were running away from whoever was attacking them. It gave Jane chills just to think about it. 
She imagined men from another settlement waiting until the young men left for a hunting trip, or a battle, and then attacking, kidnapping the young women and slaughtering the old. It was a practice known as wife raiding in the textbooks. Looking at evidence like this, it was truly horrific. She felt the hair on the back of her neck stand up, and she looked around, certain that she would find one of her co-workers trying to get her attention, but they were all working intently on their own tasks. She couldn't shake the feeling that someone was watching her, and after last night, she wasn't at all sure it was a friendly presence. A tap on her shoulder nearly made her jump out of her skin. Jesus, you feeling a little jumpy today, Jane? Sorry, Ruby. I didn't get much sleep last night. Bow chicka wow wow, Ruby indicated David. What? No, nothing like that. We heard some strange noises last night, things we couldn't explain. Yeah, that's why I don't like to camp. I love being outside during the day, but everything looks different at night. I can totally understand why our ancestors were afraid what lurked in the forest. It wasn't like animals or anything. It sounded human. This is going to sound crazy, but it sounded like people were being murdered. They were screaming in agony. We went to check it out, but there was nothing there. I've never heard anything like that. Oh my God, are you guys okay? Yeah, nothing happened to us. We didn't even see anything. It was just hard to go back to sleep after that. Yeah, I bet. You know, the locals think this place is haunted, right? No? Why didn't anybody tell me before I decided to camp? Oh, please. Like you would have listened to anyone. Hey, Jane, you might want to spend some more money and stay in town with us. Not because you'll be more comfortable and we can hang out, but because there are evil spirits wandering around out here at night. Okay, you're right. I would have laughed at you guys before, but I'm not laughing now. It's not too late to change your mind. The bed and breakfast has empty rooms. Why don't you check in after work? Why torture yourself out here? Maybe you're right. I need to check with David first, though. I can't leave him out here by himself. Bow chicka wow wow. Seriously, knock it off. Why do I have to be sleeping with him to stay out here? Isn't it enough motivation that he's another human and we should look out for each other? I like how red your face gets when I mention it, which is why I think it's true. He's a good guy. You've known each other for years. Why don't you give it a try? Can you leave me to dig up my murder victims in peace? Ruby sobered immediately. Isn't it awful? Never imagined I'd work on a project this disturbing. Jane nodded. I agree. This is what the worst impulses of human nature look like thousands of years after the fact. It was a massacre. That's not entirely accurate. There's horrific damage to the bones, it's true. But a lot of what I'm finding shows new bone growth after the trauma. So they live for a while after it happened. That doesn't make any sense. I thought we were digging exactly where the raid took place. Why would they attack and leave the women alive? I don't think this is where the raid happened. If it is, then where are the men? We should find at least a few of them. Jane began to feel uneasy as work wrapped up for the day. Hey, David, what do you think about bowing to the elements and going to stay in town with the others? If it was really the elements we were bowing to, I think my pride could take it. But this is a mystery. I don't want to be chased off because of some noises even some really freaky ones. 
Okay, I'll stay out here for one more night. But if we hear anything, I'm packing up and moving to town for the rest of the project. You'll spend all your per diem allowance. That's what it is, a spending allowance. I'm as thrifty as anyone, but I can't keep working if I'm too scared to sleep. Yeah, I'm with you on that. All right, I agree. We'll see how it goes tonight, and if anything weird happens, I'll haul my gear back to town too. That night, Jane and David laid side by side on their air mattresses. Everything seemed quiet until Jane was roused from a deep sleep by a piercing scream. David, it's back. Are you awake? Of course I'm awake. What do we do? Well, yesterday we looked around and there was nothing. Maybe tonight we just wait? Eventually the screams of terror faded into the moans of the dying and those faded to death rattles. Then everything was quiet. I think it's over, said David. No, Jane whispered. There's another sound. Listen. They held their breath. It sounds like someone is cutting meat, David said. My uncle owned a butcher shop, and this sounds like someone sawing through bone and sinew. I remember because the sound always made me feel sick. They waited for another moment. I don't think they're cutting things anymore. I think I hear chewing. Jane's stomach roiled. Maybe the two scenes aren't connected. Right. So we're hearing the sounds of an ancient battle, and then what? A feast? They don't sound like they're celebrating. Maybe they're cleaning meat after a kill. They could just be focused. Why are we even arguing about this? This whole thing is impossible. Maybe it is, but it's happening. We both heard it. What other explanation is there? This is hardly an explanation at all. Jane thought for a moment. David, who usually cleaned and cured the meat after a hunt? Did they do it right away, after they killed the animal? It depended on the size of the animal. I worked on a mammoth kill site last year in Montana. It was fascinating. They had to butcher the thing right there because it was too big to move. I assume the same was true for other big game. But we're talking the earliest modern humans. Wherever modern man migrated, he pretty much wiped out the megafauna right away. Right, but for smaller game, things that could be carried, what did they do? I think they usually brought it back to camp. Cleaning the meat was considered woman's work. They also wanted to divide it up in front of everyone so that no one accused the hunters of being stingy. According to the cultural anthropologist, equality is still a big deal in societies that live in small groups. Do the screams sound female to you? Jane asked. How would I know that? He sounded affronted. Think back to the horror movies you watched as a kid. Do they sound like women screaming and crying? It's hard to tell, but I think not. I think they sound more like men. Where are you going with this? Bear with me. The bones we've been finding at the site are all female, right? They all look like victims of major trauma which is concentrated on the backsides of their bodies. Isotopic analysis also reveals that none of the women are native to this island. Where'd you hear that? Ruby told me earlier today. You know she loves doing the spectral analysis. I didn't think about what that meant until now. Care to share with the group? What if we're not hearing the initial wife raid like we assumed? What if men from this island went somewhere else, waited for the able-bodied men to leave on a hunt, and then came in and grabbed all the women? 
What if they brought them back here to be wives and mothers, but things didn't work out the way they'd planned? I think we're hearing the aftermath of the kidnapping. I think the women waited for the men to fall asleep, and maybe plied them with strong drink, and then murdered every single one of them. Normally, I'd say you have a twisted mind, but that makes perfect sense. That's why we're hearing moans of the dying instead of cries of battle. That's why the skeletons all show signs of healing. They must have lived here without the men until the whole group died out. Some of the skeletons show signs of advanced age. That's so sad. I don't know. Maybe it was like a utopia. I don't think archaeology can tell us that part. Do you think you'll be able to go back to sleep now? I'm never sleeping again. I should have listened to you and gone to town with everybody else. The following morning, David and Jane left the tent just as the rest of the crew was arriving at the site. Bow chicka wow wow, Ruby called. Knock it off, Jane cried. How did it go last night, Ruby asked. Did you hear any other strange noises? As a matter of fact, we did. That's why we were in the same tent. I came up with a theory, but I know it sounds batshit crazy. I'm all ears, but first let me tell you what I found out last night. We went to the pub after closing up yesterday. There were some locals there. At first, they were standoffish, but after a couple of pints, they started to loosen up. There was this older bloke who told us that the locals don't just think this part of the island is haunted. They think it's cursed. Is that why we don't have any local volunteers on this dig? I suspect so. It was interesting, though. He kept saying that no man should come here. He was very specific about that. Apparently, the curse doesn't apply to women. That night, Jane and David headed back to the bed and breakfast. The project was supposed to last for several more weeks, so it made sense to get comfortable. Jane started to think about what Ruby had said. Maybe David could be more than a friend. After everyone had turned in for the night, she went to knock on his door. She told herself that she just wanted to check on him. After what they'd been through, she felt like they shared a bond. He didn't answer, and she figured he'd fallen into a deep sleep. She realized she was exhausted, too. The next morning, the whole crew assembled to take the van to the dig site. Where's David? Ruby asked. I'll check his room, Jane volunteered, her stomach plummeting. She took the stairs two at a time. Hey, David, she knocked on the door. There was no answer. She turned the knob. The door was open, but the room was empty. Jane ran back down the stairs. He's not there. I don't know where he is. Maybe he hooked up with a local, Ruby suggested. When? The only place he went last night was dinner and then to bed. I don't know. Maybe he wandered down to the pub after he went to sleep. Let's get going. We're all going to be late if we don't leave now. If he's not back by tonight, then we'll ask the front desk to see if he checked out. Maybe he left early for another project. He likes to plan ahead. All morning, Jane felt agitated. She had a hard time focusing. Normally, she felt at peace when she was digging. She was like an artist with a trowel. Today, she couldn't keep her mind on the task at hand. She felt confident David wouldn't just take off. Suddenly, there was a piercing scream. For a moment, Jane thought she was back in the tent in the middle of the night. But then she saw one of the young archaeologists, a girl whose name she didn't remember, run past her. Jane climbed out of the pit and called after her. What is it? What's happened? The woman turned around, her face completely drained of color. 
They found all the men from the settlement. They're buried over there in the giant pit. It looks like they were literally butchered. There are cut marks on their bones. They were eaten. Oh, Jane breathed. I can see how that would be disturbing for you. That's not the worst of it. They found David in the pit. He's dead. He's, well, there's not much left of him. Jane went through the rest of the day in a fog. The police questioned her, but she doubted she gave them any useful information. She couldn't stop thinking about what Ruby had told her about this part of the island being cursed. She thought maybe it was her fault for not making him go back to town sooner. She didn't have any explanation for what happened that made sense. After spending most of the day wandering around listlessly, she made a decision. Are you crazy? Ruby asked as she packed up her things. You can't go back out there. Look what happened to David. The curse only applies to men, remember? I'll be fine. Come on, Jane. Think this through. You don't know for sure that it had anything to do with a curse. There's probably a crazed killer walking around this island right now. I know what we heard out there. I have to do this. Later that night, Jane sat on the floor of her tent. She wasn't trying to sleep this time. She was just waiting. When the screaming started, she called out an answer. David, is that you? Thanks for tuning into the podcast. We hope you use this information to strike up a local conversation. Check us out at macmillanlibrary.org to see upcoming events, including concerts, speakers, movies, and more. We also have free online classes through Gale Courses, as well as a host of databases for your research needs. If you can't find what you're looking for, stop in at the information desk. The Macmillan Conversation Maker podcast can be found at macmillanlibrary.org backslash podcast. Thank you.